Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to tonight's event, Feminism in Transnational Times, a conversation with Christine Delphi, uh, with uh, Sylvie Tissot. Uh, some of you I recognize also came to Monday's uh, screening, uh, and so this is a real uh, week of joy for us uh, uh, at the Gender Institute and for Feminist Review, who are the co-hosts um, of both events. Um, uh, it's been an absolute delight to welcome both Sylvie and Christine to the Gender Institute and to LSE, and I'm really looking forward to this evening's discussion. My name is Claire Hemmings, and I'm a Professor of Feminist Theory here at the Gender Institute. Uh, and um, as I say, we're sharing the hosting of this event with Feminist Review, um, which is the UK's um, longest-standing feminist collective journal, and so in some senses is a mirror to Nouvelle Question Féministe uh, that uh, Christine uh, Delphi has been involved in uh, for a very long time and concerned with similar issues to do with the relationship between uh, the social world and interior gendered life, uh, questions um, of labour uh, and uh, representation, uh, and thinking always transnationally uh, and intersectionally about power relations in uh, today's contemporary world. Um, the event is also hosted by Stickert, um, who uh, is, uh, which is the Suntory Toyota something, something, something. <laughs> Someone will correct me on, on who that is. Um, I also want to give um, thanks to people who have made these events possible, of course, um, to Kate Stewart, the um, uh, MSc Administrator at the Gender Institute and Organiser of Events, who's done a superb job uh, in liaising and making everything possible, uh, and to uh, uh, Ilana uh, Eloi, who um, made the whole event possible um, by seducing Sylvie and Christine uh, away from uh, Paris and, and over to London for the week, uh, and uh, so uh, beautifully hosted Monday uh, night's event. So thank you very much for, for that. Um, so um, how it works is I'm going to give a brief introduction to um, our two guests. Uh, they'll have a discussion about uh, Christine's uh, new book, uh, which has recently been published by Verso, uh, translated and published by Verso, uh, Separate and Dominate. Uh, and then we'll have time, plenty of time, hopefully uh, 40 minutes or so for discussion. And then uh, please do join us for a reception uh, after the event where you can um, ask all the questions you felt too shy to for uh, up to half an hour before we whisk Christine off for dinner. Um, so um, let me introduce Christine. Uh, Christine Delphi is the uh, inaugurator, along with other collaborators, of materialist feminism and a leading figure in French feminist theory. She founded and still is involved uh, with the journal Nouvelle Question Féministe and has long been engaged in collaborative academic and activist work. And one of the reasons it's so delightful to have uh, Christine here is, is the way in which she um, traverses the political and the academic uh, spheres. Uh, in 1970, uh, she published The Main Enemy, uh, in which she declares gender a social class to which all women belong. She identified the material history and ground of sex difference as the gendered division of labour 
with her essay, Patriarchy, Feminism and Their Intellectuals, predating, interestingly, the post-structuralist understanding of gender as performative by some ten years. And it's interesting that that history of a materialist understanding of sex as uh, produced rather than natural and gender as doing that production uh, is um, less cited often than uh, the uh, queer or post-structuralist history. Uh, She extends this analysis in later work, Rethinking Sex and Gender, in the 1990s and in the 2000s in The Main Enemy, Part 2. Arguing that gender is, and I love this phrase, the principle of partition, it couldn't be more abstract and away from bodies if we think of gender as the principle of partition, with its referent uh, patriarchal authority rather than a description of complementary, heteronormatively organised attributes tethered to sex. So along with, um, and it makes me think of Monique Wittig, uh, she has always seen the task as one of challenging the presumption that male and female are meaningful or natural categories before power and considers lesbian critique to be as much one of the gendered labour of the family as it is of heterosexuality. This understanding of sex difference as forged through dominance hasn't always been popular, particularly within an Anglo-American canon that, as Delphi herself suggests in 1995, has over-associated French feminism, in inverted commas, with its post-structuralist psychoanalytic traditions rather than its materialist ones. So, in a sense, French feminism has come to mean something uh, else through its export. Or in a UK canon... Uh, and actually Feminist Review was part of this process, uh, Delphi is often identified uh, through her materialism as overgeneralized and inattentive to differences uh, among women, which, looking back, uh, I would say is uh, roundly unfair. In her new work that we'll be discussing today, uh, Separate and Dominate, Feminism and Racism After the War on Terror, Delphi explains exposes the cynical take-up of feminist liberal thinking in the banning of veiling in France, arguing for a move away from false oppositions between gender and race in radical political struggles. Importantly, she's able to do this, I think, precisely because of this refusal to naturalise sex in the previous work. And thus, in my view, is able to see the political motivations behind the saving of Muslim women as a particularly cynical move that attempts to re-naturalise sex difference and here to attach it um, uh, to culture or religion. To think with Delphi about the material conditions and perpetuation both of sex difference and of racism is to challenge the history we think we've inherited of feminists, as feminists about labour and about oppression in relationship to sex, sexuality and race. Delphi herself suggests that this is always to be out of step with fashion. But I would beg to disagree about that as the ongoing, renewed even, interest in this politically grounded work of feminist solidarity and as evidenced by the number of people coming to hear your work uh, makes evident. Um, So thank you for your work. I would now like to introduce uh, um, Christine's interlocutor, Sylvie Tissot, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Paris 8. Her academic research stands at the intersection of class analysis and urban studies, and she's particularly interested in the spatial dimensions of inequality in urban environments. She's the author of Good Neighbours, Gentrifying Diversity in Boston's South End, recently also published by Verso. 
and her current project is on gay friendliness in New York and Paris. Um, Professor Tissot has been a visiting scholar at Harvard Center for European Studies and the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. Um, Tissot is also a feminist activist and filmmaker, and it's through activism that the two, our two uh, guests met. As the co-founder of the website Les Mots Sont Importants, uh, Words Are Important, she is engaged in public debates about feminism, race, and religion. And with her sister, Florence Tissot, she's made two documentaries about Christine, I'm Not a Feminist But, which was screened on Monday, uh, and Christine Delphi from A to Z. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us, and I would like to pass the floor to the two of you to begin the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claire, and thank you for your introduction, and thanks again to the Gender Institute for having us tonight, Christine, Christine and I, and thank you for, for being here. Uh, let me start with my first question to Christine. Uh, Christine, you're one of the founders of the French Women's Liberation Movement, which began with the famous uh, uh, tribute to the unknown wife of the unknown soldier under the Arc de Triomphe in 1970. But I would like to begin this conference with your most recent political engagement, the anti-war movement in France. Um, and your engagement in this for that cause is not, new as, is not new as already in 2001, you and a few other intellectuals started a group against the war in Afghanistan, denouncing a war waged in the name of women. In a speech you gave at the introduction to an anti-war meeting in Paris last January, you denounced the colonialist idea that we can and must bring justice everywhere around the world. Western military interventions are never seen as massacres. Only terrorist attacks in our countries are framed that way. You call it a structural double standard. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, when uh, the West intervenes in other countries, it's always uh, supposedly to protect the population which generally hasn't asked anything. They haven't sent an email to Bush or to uh, our president. <laughs> Said, please come and, and bomb our oppressors. Um, no, they want to <clears throat> protect the people <clears throat> and very often uh, against themselves. For example, they, they, want to, they wanted to protect Afghan women who hadn't asked anything and wanted to survive which is a kind of a trivial pursuit. You know. So Americans said um, that it was better for them to be uh, free than, than to be alive. So they choose aims for the people they uh, pretend to protect whilst in fact protecting their own interests. And this is true of all Western countries. It's true of, it's true of France, it's true of Great Britain, it's true of the whole of Europe, it's true well, let's say of the dominant, uh, the dominant people. So, in fact, this, what we're trying to create a collective with a, a firm principle is that, uh, <clears throat> that is um, a war which is not defensive or which is not decided by the people who are going to suffer from this war is, is totally untenable. It's untenable morally, politically. It's untenable. It has to stop. 
And, and in your view, war comes to justify the, the state of emergency decided after the terrorist attacks in last November and the, Absolutely. the, the huge restriction of liberties that uh, have taken place in then? Yes, yeah, the, 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 the French government, the French president and the French government, which are sort of more or less the same thing because it's a kind of, uh, of um, democratic monarchy that we have. It's not a constitutional monarchy. It's it's, it's a kind of uh, it's very special the, the French system. Um, Don't try to explain. No, I'm no. not trying to explain. <laughs> I'm not trying either to uh, uh, to exonerate it. Uh, and the, they have uh, decided a state of emergency, which is a state of exception. The it, it within. Um, Within three days, they asked for it to be prolonged, for it to be prolonged for three, for three months till the 26th of February, and now they want to prolong it for three more months. And in fact, I mean, what they want is to get the population used to uh, the presence of not only uh, a lot of police in the streets, but also of soldiers, hmm. soldiers who have soldiers uh, with their uh, machine guns patrolling the streets and uh, everybody pretends not to see them but everybody is slightly afraid that these very young soldiers, inexperienced soldiers will at some point get bored, you know, doing nothing and will just uh, kill one of us, you know, just to, to have some fun or something or to do something or get their movements wrong. And also we have sirens all the time, day and night, day and night. Uh, police sirens all the time, as if they were, I don't know, pursuing some felon, uh, but they are not. I mean, they're just going, doing their shopping. <laughs> okay. um, in July 2015, last summer, you, you wrote an article in The Guardian explaining, describing how French feminists failed Muslim women. Um, could you be more specific? Well, what happened, and I think it's the only uh, Western country in which it happened, is that what happened is that when the government in 2004 decided to uh, ban from school, from school attendance, from public schools, uh, from state schools, <laughs> public schools in, uh, in Great Britain may have two different meanings. Um, the, the, to ban um, religious uh, signs, religious emblems, etc. They, they were in fact pursuing uh, the young girls wearing the hijab. And the um, um, thing is, um, sorry, I lost my thread. Um, I, was, I was talking about the article in The Guardian yeah. and what you said about French feminists. Yeah, well, uh, you tell that to any feminist anywhere in the world and they're horrified. That's the thing, they're horrified. What, what do you mean? What do you mean that they, they can't uh, uh, go into a classroom with their headscarf on? I remember there was a documentary uh, about six or seven years ago and, and there was this uh, French official or maybe schoolmaster going into a, um, um, a Scandinavian school, a Swedish school, and explaining that uh, due to uh, laicity, you know, French secularism, that it was forbidden to uh, to wear 
uh, a headscarf. And there was this little boy, a black little boy, and said, so France is not a democracy. And I wanted to <laughs> blow that little boy, you know, because that's what is true. That's what it is true. But in France, what happened is that, uh, well, the majority of feminists, in fact, supported that law, supported that law, you know. Uh, or didn't fight against it. That, or didn't fight against it, yeah. And we were only a handful to fight against it, and we were immediately cut dead by all our feminist friends. And, and, and denounced. Yeah, and speaking about the, the Guardian piece, um, when it was, after it was published, so last summer, a journalist from the center-left newspaper, Liberation, wrote mm -hmm. an article entitled The Mistake of Christine Delphi. Yeah, well... Mistake in that you had called feminists racist. And, oh, and yeah. isn't yeah. it amazing that it, it, it's so difficult to make an anti-racist critique? To make an anti-racist critique, yeah, it's difficult because uh, you're not supposed to call people racist even when they are racist because <laughs> the, most, uh, the most racist of all is the person who is, is calling you racist. I know, it's very complicated. <laughs> uh, because the person who's called a racist suffers a lot, suffers terribly, you know. So you, sh you shouldn't do that to people. You shouldn't do that. No, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> I don't think I even called the feminist racist, uh, but I myself, I'm a mistaken woman, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how they see you, yeah. I mean, that's how as they... As terribly mistaken, as wanting to keep, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but the level of, of racism and, and of, of willing racism, that is of de deliberate uh, will to remain ignorant, to remain offensive, has been shown in an article by a woman who says she's a feminist and she's a feminist in other respects and she says if we accept the hijab then, uh, I mean these women want us to accept the hijab that means they want us to accept female genital mutilation um, um, polygamy, polygamy uh, I don't know, about three or four uh, different things that Uh, these women, of course, do not uh, particularly want or do not want at all. Uh, so, um, but there is, um, th these women, these feminists have never tried even talking with a woman wearing a hijab. They've never, yeah, they, they sort of they have a repulsion which is uh, typically racist. And, but fortunately, Sylvia and I would think that the next, uh, that the, the coming generation of young feminists is, is not so racist as the older one. Yeah. And in, in, in 2006, you wrote an article called Anti-Sexism versus Anti-Racism, a False Opposition for Nouvelle Question Feminist, a, a journal you, you founded with Uh, Simone de Beauvoir in the late 70s and, and at the end of this piece you argued that taking racism into account is necessary in the struggle against patriarchy today. Absolutely, because racism affects women as well and it affects women also in sexist ways. When we see, for example, the treatment of black or Arab women in, in France who are not any longer called uh, Arab or black men, now they're called Muslims, so that, that, so that the racism they suffer can be part of a, of a self-validating 
the war against terror and for civilization, yeah, because they, they've got to get rid of the, of the, the oppressive uh, Islam. And, uh, and we're going to help them. Well, that's a, com- a comforting thought. But, uh, because I remember back then in 2003 and 2004, that's what these feminists would say. They would say, okay, so you have an anti-racist position, but you cannot be anti-racist and feminist. So uh, some said, you know, you can be either one or the, an- or yeah. the other. That the thing is that the... Uh, the in the case of the hijab, they opposed the, what seemed to them the feminist uh, position, feminist stance of, of being anti this religious sign because it's the, the sign to them. They call it a sign of oppression, you know. And I've heard that I don't know time and again. It's a sign of oppression, and uh, so they feel justified into refusing uh, the entrance of a group to a woman who wears a sign of oppression. And of course, we've all done that in feminist groups. I mean, we would, you know, really we, had, we were vetting each feminist and looking if she wasn't wearing a sign of oppression before letting her in the room. Uh, but the, the thing is, it's quite, in the case of the hijab, it's quite normal to... Uh, to say, but they were in the sign of oppression. You know, no. and of course, they never think about looking at themselves and, and, and wondering whether they are wearing or not, you know, very visible signs of oppression, at least to my mind, you know. We're all wearing signs of oppression. You don't even have to wear a sign of oppression. <laughs> you are a sign of oppression. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're, you're very critical of the French claim of universalism, which outside of France looks very singular, uh, even peculiar. And uh, the title of one of your books is A Very Singular Universalism. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I was reading recently, and that was years after publishing that book, which isn't that old after all, but still, uh, that France should not uh, call to... Um, universalism when it doesn't have a means to do so and that guy was saying that that we don't have the means next foreign minister uh, France doesn't have the means to conduct so many wars at the same time or to conduct any wars at all but and I didn't understand what he meant by universalism and by that he meant that France is allowed to intervene everywhere because it has because its way of looking at life, the French way of looking at life, uh, French morals, if such a thing exists, uh, French everything, you know, French way of, of uh, eating, of drinking, of, um, of dressing, is universal in the sense that it can apply to the whole world. So there is no sense of taking everybody into account. There's just a, a sense of, of converting everybody to your own values, you know. This is what the, the French call universalist. What, what, what anybody would call a, a conquering uh, uh, outlook is called in, in France universal. So, you know, that you feel good, you know. And I was just showing, you know, how it is not universal and... Uh, uh, how it is uh, cu- culturally specific, and and how the fact of considering that that France is a kind of 
of, of light in, in, in an obscure world uh, was was colonialist by itself, you know. It was uh, and was um, an attitude that that bears war uh, uh, necessarily, war and intolerance, and you cannot be very surprised then by the way they treat minorities or, you know, and particularly Arabs and, and, and blacks, when you think of that, you know, that is the, the most um, ignorant person because of being um, white, in fact, um, can teach everything to, to, to the rest of the, of the population living in France or even living, or living abroad. So, you, you know, you can go and and do this and that. This is what Americans did in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. They thought that if they went and, and conquered everything and destroyed everything, they, then these people would have democracy. What they had was, well, they, they, they had water they couldn't drink. This is what they had um, because everything had been destroyed. And, um, and this is really a ferment of war. And France is not the only country which makes itself universal. You could say that the British did too. I mean, because, but this is part of the colonial outlook. This is part of the colonial outlook. And, uh, well, I've got to get back on my feet there. Uh, Universalism, but you can... Well, yeah. this, this universalism in that sense has to be uh, rejected, and another definition of universalism has to be adopted. If, it, if universalism doesn't mean taking everyone into account, then it's not universalism. It has, so universalism implies confrontation, and discussion, dialogue between different cultures, and the common definition. And this has been started, mind you, even though it does seem impossible, but the, the UN has started doing that. They have started building, uh, well, for example, when, when, they, when they have to build a convention, like, for example, the, the, so, uh, the CEDO, you know, the mm. Convention on the Equality of, of Women, etc. They tried to build, not value-free, they tried to, to build value-free values, that is, values that could be considered values in all the cultures that are represented in the United Nations. And I think this is what universalism should mean. And it's not impossible to do if you really take everybody into account. Mm -hmm. uh, in Paris, both of us and, and with uh, Florence, my sister, we went to see an exhibition called Who's Afraid of Women Photographers? Um, a very feminist exhibition, and in, in the first period, the exhibition covered the second half of 19th century. Uh, professional female photographers were very active um, in several large cities in France, uh, Europe, and, and the United States. And interestingly, the, the exhibition points to, the, to striking national disparities. The, the Photographic Society of London announced explicitly right from its foundation in, in 1853 that ladies were welcome as members, whereas in France, the photographic community would long be characterized by an androcentrism that was totally accepted. 
So I don't know, it's a tricky question, but do you see any difference between France and UK or France and the US in that matter? Or could we say that the characteristic of, of French sexism is, is like this, this huge denial as we saw during the Dominique Strauss-Kahn scandal? Well, let's say some, some countries, but you cannot always say which ones uh, will, be, uh, uh, will have the best grades in terms of sexism. Uh, but certainly, at this moment in Europe, France is certainly ahead of lots of countries. If you discount, if you discount, I suppose Italy. But for example, a country which, which you would never have thought of, like Spain, has made huge progress. Like, for example, voting—that uh, was under the, under the socialist government of Zapatero—voting an organic law against violence what they call gender violence, against violence against women, and even this, and the civil society too. Now, each time there's a woman killed by her husband or, or companion, uh, it, it, it makes front page news, at least in the regional papers. And there's a, what they call a white march, that is all the neighbors uh, have a march in the, in the district. And, uh, and I've seen in, in airports big, big uh, government-funded um, panels saying, if you're a man, you don't beat a woman, and things like that. I mean, they appeal to, uh, to local values, of course. But, uh, uh, so there's been a strong uh, government commitment to uh, fighting violence against women, whereas in France, it's, it's always the last thing that's... Uh, uh, that's considered. It's, uh, even though feminist groups do try to advance that cause and our books published and there are committees and there are marches, etc., but it's always being uh, given the, the, last, the last place. It's, it's the last priority. It, it faces an opposition that is, that is fantastic. Now how to, to you know, to to put Britain on, on a scale, I mean, to put any country on a scale, you know, seen from Mars, where I go frequently, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, these differences are really invisible, you know. These differences are the, the differences of, of degrees, you know. They, 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 don't, they don't matter, they don't count. Uh, there, are, there are differences, but they're not, I don't think they're enormous. And, and, but let's say France denies that it has uh, any problem. Now, how long will that last? Already the media, for example, are, are publishing more articles about violent, domestic mm. violence, so it's not, mm. it's not so important. Um, in the early 60s, you went to the U.S. to, to study at the University of Chicago and then uh, Berkeley, and then to work for the Washington Urban League. And you say that witnessing the U.S. Uh, civil rights movement helped you see racism in a way you hadn't been able to see it in France, though it existed there too. Could, could you explain or could you say a few words about your experience of the U.S. during the civil rights movement? Well, I, I, I was there and I arrived in '62. That was one of the hot summers and I was really interested in it. It was very... Uh, very appealing that, that fight, you know, the freedom rides, you know, the, the, the chance, the, the, the killings, everything. So it was a big drama, and 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 uh, it made you touched. Uh, 
racism, because racism was more dramatic also in the U.S. You know, the situation of blacks in the South was something horrendous. I mean, there were marches to, to desegregate the, 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 the facilities on, uh, on federal highways and also to register uh, blacks who couldn't vote because the, 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 the right to vote, the citizenship was a federal right, but each state could put its conditions. It's like with abortion. And the condition was that uh, you should read and write. And um, so Negroes were, as they were called at that time, were given a test, and the whites were not given the test. So Negroes failed it, and, and whites, whites passed it. That, that was as simple as that. So Negroes couldn't vote in the, in the southern states. So the march was really something that was relayed in all the media, etc. And I really realized what racism was. But there was racism against Arabs in my own country. Uh, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it because I think deep down I was racist too. That, that was old. I mean, what they were, what they were doing, where they were, that was, that was natural. That went without saying. That went without saying at that time, you know. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like classism in that sense, you know. So, so they pick up the garbage. It's their role, and you know. Um, in in 1989, you wrote an article rethinking sex and gender, and you give your own definition of gender as a principle of partition, as Claire said. Gender is not only or no longer the social part of the two sexes, men and women. Uh, their role, their attitudes. Instead, gender is what divides individuals in two groups, sex mm-hmm. being merely a, a marker. Yeah. Could you, could you um, say well, a few words about this, this theory and, and how you summarized in, in the sentence gender precedes, precedes <laughs> yeah. sex? Sorry. Well, I inverted the, 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 the regular, I mean, the, the way that people looked at it, because gender as a word, as a concept existed. I mean, uh, you know, Anne Oakley had written that book, Sex and Gender, in 72 or 74, I can't remember exactly. And so the concept of gender existed, but it was seen, and including by Gail Rubin, who wrote that famous article, can't remember its title, uh, as... Uh, that's what I wrote as the, the legendary beret on the head of the typical Frenchman. That is, it was sitting on sex, you know. It was sort of like it had sitting, but it had to be worn by a head. And the head was sex. I know this is confusing I mean, for <laughs> people who study anatomy, but... Uh, <laughs> and so I inverted that sequence, you know. Instead of seeing... Uh, sex as the, the precondition to gender, gender being a sort of uh, social uh, um, kind of social uh, adornment of sex, but there was sex as a, as a, a pre-given, uh, as a given uh, and, and natural condition you know, of each of the two sexes. I said, well, first you have gender, which is domination, and then you have the social roles that this domination implies, this, uh, the, what is called very often the sexual division of labor, which has nothing to do with sex as we think of it as a sort of amusement. But uh, uh, sometimes I'm not saying always. Uh, <laughs> but sex as an, atom- as an anatomical uh, trait, 
uh, and then you have sex, that is, because sex is something that is on the body, yes, but before it is on the body, it has to be seen, it has to be perceived as something really important, something that makes a difference between A and B, etc. And this is the one thing that is different, that is difficult to explain. Why would it be possible not to see it? It's always possible not to see something. And it's always possible to see something because you don't see something before you know there is something to see. Before you see something, you have to have a name, you have to have a a concept of what it is. Uh, If you're not told, I mean, this is the difficulty that city people have in in, in differentiating one flower from the next in the field. And once they have learned where to look and what it is that differentiates one flower or one tree from the next, then it seems to them obvious. I say, but don't you see this? Don't you see that? But if you don't know what is the differentiating factor, you do not see it. You simply do not see it because you're not looking for it. And so my contention, and I know it's difficult for people to admit that, is that sex is a marker, as a tattoo could be, as the so-called skin color of people could be, because the skin color also is not necessarily seen. That seems impossible in our post-colonial and racist society. That seems impossible. How can you not see the... And Colette Guillaume, one of the French uh, materialist feminists, said that in Marco Polo's uh, uh, story of his trip to, to, to the East, he mentions people who we would first describe as Asian, but he never mentions their color. He mentions the, mm. you know, uh, what kind of expressions they had, uh, how they were clothed, etc. He never mentions their color. Racism hadn't been invented. Yes, there was a time when racism hadn't been invented. Their skin color did not matter to him. It, they, had, they had skin. <laughs> and I think that's very important to try and, and, and realize that uh, you could, you know, some things are subsumed in a, a, a wider concept. For example, people say, but you have a sex. Yeah, well, you could say everybody has a sex. I mean, females have a sex, and males have a sex, and other people have, uh, you know, uh, are, for example, we call them intersex. But why do we call them intersex? It's only because we have defined a, a normative uh, female sex and a normative uh, male sex. Why do we not consider people as having a sex period, mm. which may take different forms? So. Male and female is not, I mean, this distinction has to be created out of lots of different sexes, different shapes and colors and whatnot of of different sexes. It has to be divided into two. And as my friends, psychologists, uh, Marie-France Pichemin and and Mike Lodotic said, there is first a social creation of the sexes themselves. The sexes are not two. You have to create them into two by first, well, decided that there are only two and that you have to 
put each person into one category or into another, and also by, by surgery now. By surgery you do. I mean, you rectify the, the, the faulty sexes of, of people that you cannot put in categories. And there's a rebellion of the so-called intersex people against that now. Because they are tortured sometimes till the, into their 20s, you know, from children into uh, their adolescence, etc., and uh, so we must think about that. Maybe we could think people as all having a sex, whatever it is. We could think of people not having a sex. Mm. We, we, can, we don't have to think of people as having this, that, and the other. Sometimes there are things that are important and things that are not important. Uh, they are important in a, in a pragmatic fashion. Yeah. For example, we, 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 we distinguish the rain from the snow, because it's important for us to distinguish between rain and snow. But that's it. I mean, we don't go any further. We don't elaborate on that. Well, it's said that the Eskimos have 30 uh, names for snow, because it's important for them the differences in this snow, that snow, There's no hierarchy involved. There's no... No, there's no hierarchy. I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm, I mean, between rain and snow. Oh, between rain and snow, no. I mean, depends depends whether you like, you know, the winter sports or not, but uh, <laughs> otherwise there's no, there's no hierarchy, no, no. But, I mean, so how could you tell uh, the difference between rain and snow if we didn't have words for that? You know, you'd say, well, I came home, I was all wet. Maybe there would no, be no name for wet, but, but you wouldn't know whether it was uh, rain or snow. But how about the Eskimo? How can they be happy when you tell them it's snowing outside? And they say, you know, but you're not telling me everything. What kind of snow, you know? Because there are 30 words for it. There are 30 different kinds of, of snow. So I think one must admit that. Now, if you admit that, that there is no such thing as a natural world. There is a world in interaction with us, whether us be mice or men. No, I mean, okay. uh, mice or, or, I mean, animals or human beings. And we classify according to our needs, to what we do with this environment. So there is no natural world and, and in the sense that it would be a given that mm. it is imposed by itself, that there are categories that must be universal, etc. So what is... Uh, so that... Well, if you admit that, if you accept that, then you understand that sex may be a marker just as skin color is and nothing more than that. Mm. And that you, from there, you can rethink the whole system differently. I haven't finished, but... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um. Maybe one more question. So uh, drawing on Marx's concept as well as critiquing Marx's theory, you developed an analysis of marriage in which the housewife is the exploited domestic laborer. And this led to an entirely new theory of exploitation in the book you wrote with the British scholar Diana Leonard, Familiar Exploitation, a new analysis of marriage in contemporary Western societies. When when did you meet her and, and when did you start working with her? I met her in 74 at um, a British Sociological Association annual meeting. 
and with Jana Hammer, who was back there and was present too. And it was the first uh, annual meeting of that association, which had been organized by women. And the book that issued from this um, uh, conference was called um, it was called Sexual Divisions and Society. And that was an extraordinary meeting for all sorts of, uh, of um, f- feminists and, in, in Great Britain. But also for me, that's where I met Jana, I met Diana Leonard, and, and uh, quite a few other women. And I started working with Diana Leonard after that, mm. working on, on that book, which came out only in 92. It's called Familiar Exploitation. And, and so materialist feminism, uh, this theoretical perspective developed by you know, friend, feminists called Guillaume, Paola Taben, Nicole Code Mathieu, and yourself, is fundamentally non-naturalist. Um, and yet what has been known as French feminism in the Anglophone world, especially in the US, is an in, it's essentialist variety of feminism. And, and I hope this discussion can contribute to questioning this this view of French feminism? Well, French feminism is not, I mean, feminism in France is not, I mean, we are not the only uh, current, theoretical current. I mean, French materialist uh, uh, feminism is not, uh, unfortunately, it's not the dominant current. Uh, (laughs) I I deplore it, but there are, we have our essentialist, you know, neo-femininity, Etc. And we have also our, well, you know, so-called Marxist feminists who want to, uh, who accept that that uh, the well, the dominant role of the uh, socialist or so-called socialist revolution to come, uh, you know, and that the, the two have to be integrated. Mm integrated with, uh, you know, a hierarchy. I mean, uh, there's going to be a boss there. So we, we were, in fact, not in the middle, but we were, and, and we are, in a sense, uh, I mean, we devised, uh, well, I devised the term feminist, feminist materialism, or rather materialist feminist from feminism from... Uh, an idea actually directed at the social sciences for not that, no, not that it, was, it was a double-featured uh, idea that first the social sciences could not deal with the oppression of women because they didn't call it the oppression of women. So, you know, examined all the social sciences. So that was a tabula rasa. And also that... Uh, the theory could not develop if it, it could develop only if it was a fight, if there was a fight, if there was a struggle. There was a struggle because without a struggle you cannot develop concepts. You, 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 you just cannot. It has, the two are associated. If you don't want to move, you don't need this dynamic analysis of society. If you want to get from here to there, then you have to analyze it in terms that are not the terms usually used. But if you don't want to move, nothing new will will happen. So this was the outlook with which I wrote this this paper called For Materialist Feminism. 
and then it was uh, applied to my, my, my friends and colleagues, and, and now it's more seen, and, and it is, of course, as first and foremost anti-essentialist, okay? And uh, materialist in that sense. And anti-essentialist doesn't mean that we don't uh, take into consideration um, the... Uh, the, 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 you know, the, that we don't believe in essences and in the sense that we believe by, by material, we believe that material, that relationships are the main thing, that mm-hmm. the relationships between classes, categories of people are the main motor of, of history. And uh, that, uh, and it's not the material in the sense of something that is uh, tangible. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like a chair or etc. Because the essentialists also believe that they start from the material. They say we start from what is most material, the body. But again, the body doesn't have a kind of. It doesn't have its own meaning. You cannot say the body says this or the body says that because the body really doesn't say anything because nothing says anything. <laughs> so, well, hmm. I can't say much more about that. Uh, but I think we can maybe hmm, open the discussion to the um, yeah. audience. Uh, well, you let's thank you, the two of you for your discussion. Um, thank you uh, for asking such fantastic questions and uh, for the responses. I was about to say uh, I would kick off by answers? asking and, and fantastic answers. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it goes without saying, of course, perhaps. Um, but, uh, and I was about to say I should ask a question while people think of things that they would like to say, but I see already we have a hand, so uh, um, please pass the mic. Oh, wait, we'll just. Could you take the mic so everyone will be able to hear you? Uh, Christine, Sheila Jeffries here. Yes. Yes. Uh, I can remember 40 years ago, uh, we had a disagreement over the point that I want to make now. <laughs> Some of us are older than others, right? Um, the, the point of disagreement, as I understand it, is about the significance of biology and of women's biological bodies. Now, um, at, when you were talking just now about uh, racism and sexism, you were explaining that sex functions as a marker in the same way as skin color may function as a marker because both sexism and racism are invented and then some markers are created in order to recognize the different categories in those systems of oppression. Fine. I don't agree. Now, the the reason I don't agree is because the women's biology enables women to reproduce. It's terribly important in that way. And my understanding is that in terms of race, different skin color is not, for instance, something that can be used in the creation of enormous sexual excitement for men so that we have forms of sexual violence and forms of sexual perversion by men and all sorts of ways of having erections from being able to use the biology. Now, different skin color doesn't function in that way. If we think about the biology by which women reproduce... (laughs) 
The fact that women introduce... Well, let's say that we do not have white people scraping off the skin of people of different colours to have erections. I mean, that's something that's not exactly a, a, a form of it. I agree that race, raced sexism exists. Obviously, that is the case. I have no problem with that at all, right? But it's not actually the skin colour that gets used in the specific sexual excitement as it is in the subordination of women. Also, in terms of reproduction, we have the creation of heterosexuality and of family systems in order to exploit and use women's biology. It's not the same in racism. So women's biology is not the reason women are oppressed. I would never say that, as you never would either. But the fact that women's biology can be used in this way has led to differences in the way that sexism operates, which is that women are confined in marriages, forced to reproduce, denied abortion, raped, sexuality functions to subordinate women because it creates the class status of men, and so on and so on and so on. So I think there's something very different about the subordination of women. I'm not interested in getting into hierarchies of different kinds of oppression or anything of that kind. I just want to say that there is something very different Different. And in the way that you were speaking, it seemed you were just sort of glossing that over. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I understand, I understand your point. Now, once you... I was, what I'm trying to do is not saying that uh, racism... <coughs> And sexism are the same thing in their, in their expression. Uh, and, and it's true that uh, uh, men exploit every uh, part and parcel of women, you know, not only their work, but also, um, well, let's say their, uh, their body, uh, etc. Et I, I agree with you, but that doesn't mean that uh, it is not, it is not, a marker to distinguish the uh, the dominant class from the dominated class. But it is not just a marker. It is not just a marker. People are used for what they can do. I mean, if you have a if you have a tall slave, you will exploit that tallness. If you have a, a short slave, you will exploit that shortness. If, you know, I mean, people are exploited for what they have, also for what their body can. Can, can achieve. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not denying that, but it's not, uh, I'm not denying any, any of what you've said in describing the exploitation of women and of women's bodies. It, 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 let's say it's not on the same level. Mm. It's not on the same level. You, you're talking about the level of actual exploitation, okay, and actual torture that's being done to people. I'm talking about the way that Gender defines what we find significant in people's mm. bodies. So, I mean, the one thing does not uh, nullify the other. Mm. Any other questions or comments? Uh, right at the back. And I'll, I'll see you there afterwards. Okay. Thank you for your talk. Um, you, you mentioned that gender is a function of domination. And, and I wanted to, I've always been confused by this. I mean, is, if, if dominant people are gendered male and subordinate people are gendered female, is the Queen of England socially a male? Is Hillary Clinton socially a male? 
And then if it's just class, if you want to say that they are exceptional people and that they are exceptional women, there are also, you could say, classes of people. So, for example, are female professors relative to, a, to students who are male, are, who's dominant and who's subordinate? Is the female professors, are they socially male? because they are dominant. And who, what about the relation of mothers to sons? Who is dominant between mothers, the class of mothers and the class of sons? Are the class of mothers, are they socially male? And are the sons socially female? That's my question. I've never really understood gender theory. Socially female in relation, male in relationship to sons. We've got a feisty crowd in here this evening. So, uh, uh, Christine. Well, um... Thank you, sir, for these very original questions which, uh, <laughs> about the status of uh, the Queen of England uh, and, uh, and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. In, uh, in my time, it was uh, about um, Mrs. Thatcher, but, you know, I mean, you know let's, let's, let's move on with, uh, with the times, yeah. I'm sorry, but all these questions have been debated by uh, men like you, even though they were, uh, I mean, they've been thrown at us for uh, decades now. And uh, I think we're not, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to, to sound impolite, but we're not uh, going to go into this. We're just not going to go But you can stay. <laughs> and, uh, and we will have the next questioner. Sorry, uh, a man following a man on the questioning. Um, but this was more of just a comment, and actually just I felt the urge to respond to the lady with a 40-year-old argument um, with a specific reference to uh, and essentially echoing um, the main message from the conversation that I heard, which is it's very easy to fall into convenient divisions, um, definitions that diminish the bigger argument, the bigger issue, which is an issue of power. Um, and I think, you know, sectioning, and I know she didn't mean to um, grade uh, different types of um, disempowerment. But I think inevitably that's what happens when you try to qualify a particular form of disempowerment, uh, disenfranchisement, um, simply because there's a stronger argument for biology playing a factor. I think biology plays a factor even in issues of racism. Um, slaves used to be thrown over into the ocean if they were weaker and couldn't you know, survive their months um, the man's long journey from Africa into, into the Americas. Um, and yes, taller slaves, shorter slaves, all levels of physical discrimination and division uh, that applied to that form of disempowerment. Um, but I think the general lesson, which really, uh, for me, uh, the general takeaway from that argument, um, which really echoes the bigger t point that you were making, is that any of these forms... Any, trying to distinguish any of these forms of disempowerment really just demeans the bigger, um, the bigger fight, which is a fight against disempowerment uh, of all forms. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I just wanted to just put that, you know, 
put that word out and focus minds around your, your, main, your main argument. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, do you want to respond or do you want to? Well, I'll, uh, uh, what, what could I do that? Um, I think one of the interesting things is also that these arguments, of course, have not been resolved. I mean, there's, it is interesting to revisit those arguments, particularly when we're thinking about... When I was uh, thinking about you coming and was thinking about the way we tell the history of feminist theory, we often tell it as though particular arguments have been resolved, and then we have a context in which arguments that appear to have been resolved or that we wish had been resolved or that actually have explicitly not been resolved surface in particular ways that reminds us of the fact that actually we, we have to keep, you know, coming back to the same of course. discussions, yeah. I And they're not resolved. They're not resolved not in the sense that, well, they're not resolved first in the sense that they're seen as, as very different things. I remember in the 70s, uh, uh, for example, Barrett and Macintosh writing in a Feminist Review... Uh, uh, that um, well, uh, biology played no real role in, in racism. That is, okay, it was just a, a make believe. It was a pretext. It was not, you know, it was not the real reason. Whereas uh, with women and men, biology played a real role. But but they seem to well. First, I don't think that biology plays that role into like making um, males dominant and what we call males dominant, what we call females submissive or, sub, uh, or oppressed. But also, they didn't see that uh, in the not so far past, let's say in the well called the beginning, well, to the middle of the, the 20th century. And um, racism, especially in, in, since colonialism, had, uh, had been very biologically informed, you know. Uh, the, the dominated people, colonized people, were seen as, as, as really inferior. I mean, th- th- there were measurements of their brains, uh, um, not of their actual brains, but of their skulls. Uh, they were, and, and, and each had a type, and they were judged. Um, it, it was judged that it was impossible, given their limited possibilities, to, um, to employ them in, in, in some capacities, you know. So it was not just that we had to teach them civilization. It was also that we were employing them in, in, the, in the few limited jobs that they could achieve. And so and it, had, it didn't have anything to do with what was later, what was then seen as race, because it was the same reasoning that was employed in the, in the 19th century about the classes, you know, about the classes. The, 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 the poor were seen as basically different and deficient, deficient, mentally deficient, all of them, mentally and physically deficient, and in a sense they were because the poor didn't eat enough. And, but it was forbidden to them to dress in the same way as the upper classes because there was a distinction. As I talk about a marker also because there's always the necessity to have a marker. So uh, you'll say, 
okay, for example, when I talk about this, the, the marker of sex, it's really a very, uh, well, okay, so proletarians had a, didn't, could not dress as, uh, uh, as upper class people. If, if for example, uh, a lady's maid was seen wearing the same clothes as a lady in a train, she could be arrested. But people have forgotten that. Well, they never knew it. Uh, people weren't there in the 19th century. <laughs> um, but we, we forget to what extent, uh, not only our societies, but societies in general, want to find a good excuse for their evil actions. That's what they want to do. Um, and uh, and th- there's always this sort of uh, reserve that is called nature. Mm. And they find in nature what they cannot find in culture. Culture is the work of human beings. Mm. And this is, you know, that's how we describe the world with our own cultural wor- uh, words. And now they, they want to find it in nature. They feel safer if they find all these meanings and values in nature. Mm-hmm. But nature doesn't have any values. That's, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And we won't find any hierarchy between human beings in nature or between elements of nature either. But we want to do that, that or find it in supernature, which is God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's three. I was, uh, if I, can I collect some questions of for course, you? Of course, yes. Otherwise, I might go on to the next year. That would be nice. Um, there's one there, the, uh, Anya at the front, and there's somebody at the back, exactly. So if we take all three questions, and then I'll take another round. Hi, my name is Carmen, and uh, thank you very much for, for this discussion. Uh, my question is, um, is more about how you would analyze... Okay, so I think in, in France with this 2004 law, France has really been the guinea pig in a lot of ways for uh, countries and provinces um, internationally having either debates or, or laws uh, around religious stress. And I come from the context of Quebec where we don't have a law, but these uh, bill proposals are very much present. And so my question is how you would... Uh, maybe compare or analyze these sort of debates in a more international context because I think within France the the colonial history with um, Algeria, Morocco, Morocco and Tunisia are so present in these discussions of Islamophobia but they don't explain the Islamophobia yeah. in other countries say like right. Denmark or you know elsewhere so I just wanted to hear more about, about right. your analysis at an mm-hmm. international level. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Should I answer now? Or no, you would take questions? three questions, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, the back, right at the back, and then we'll take, and, yeah. Okay, um, just following on, really, in some ways, from the previous um, question, um, I just wanted to go back to this, the, the way in which you framed the whole argument around the colonizer and the colonized. I agree with a lot of what you say around... Uh, you know, the oppression of women being an excuse on, you know, to, for example, invade Afghanistan or whatever. But I feel that that particular framing does not allow any space or agency for black women who might have expressed 
uh, opposition critique campaigning against the most oppressive practices in their own community. So, for example, you say that white French feminists who condemn the hijab is, is a sign of racism. But I, as a black woman, would condemn uh, hijabs. I don't go as far as, for example, banning, because I think that that's part of the continuous assault, racist assault on a minority community. But I feel that we should be able to have that discussion and to see it as a marker of oppression. And not. I think it's dangerous to equate it with, you know, other markers of oppression that we uh, signs of oppression as you called it um, that we might have in the way we dress because you know say as we are talking about the hijab as an example um, I, I would argue that it is a cloth that comes soaked in blood because in places like Afghanistan and Iran and others it is enforced with brutality so we have to you know look at that particular um, transnational context as well and the last question yeah. down here with the three. This is third one. <laughs> yeah. Sorry? One more question. Oh, so, oh okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Do you mind um, Thank you very much for a wonderful conversation we are having. Uh, my name is Shazia Bas. Uh, I'm the founder and the CEO of a uh, uh, development organization based in Pakistan. So um, so my question is basically, I mean, uh, what is your uh, research and knowledge outcome, uh, because you have worked over the years, that how we can um, address to these challenges where uh, women rights are, I mean, on denial, and we have kind of multiple challenges, like we already have the male-dominant society, and then we have religious extremism, and then we know, I mean, the, the war on terror, and then we have, I mean, uh, migrations from Afghanistan. And so, so what kind of, let's say, if the organizations, like mine organization, they want to work for women, so what, how can we actually be able to influence the policy makers or the bodies who are involved in, so that we, can, we are actually able to do some work for the women development. Thank you. Maybe next three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can remind you what they are. Okay. Yeah. The first one was the international context of um, of wearing the hijab. So, uh, the front, how do you think about? about oh yeah, 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 yeah. Terms? Starting with Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, okay. Uh, yeah, it's true. Well, there is a problem for uh, French-speaking francophone countries, which tend to follow France, some of them, some milieus, not everybody. Remember that uh, uh, the, <laughs> the platform for uh, Quebec values has been defeated, you know, and, and uh, the woman who was head of the, of, the, of the province was demoted. So that's a pretty good sign. And, you know, and... Uh, it's mostly the souverainists, that is, I don't know how you say that, in the, the independentists in Quebec who, uh, who supported that. And um, I think in that case, but as you say, we've got to see it more widely. And in Europe, there are uh, more questions being, being raised about the hijab, I think, in, in Great Britain, uh, but in, in, in some other countries, etc. But that's part, yeah. That is part of a general um, 
Islamophobic feeling in in the West, you know, it happens in the in um, in, uh, in the U.S. as well. I mean, there's a strong Islamophobia, and and the hijab is an Islamic sign. There's no getting around that, you know. It's called the Islamic scarf. So uh, maybe I should have uh, since I was. Sylvie was referring to an article I wrote. I wrote in France because in France it's uh, well that's where the debate was happening for us because the law was going to be passed in France and not in Switzerland, not in Belgium, not in Quebec. It was going to be passed in France. Well, it was passed and had passed in France. So the question was to, and I was speaking to French people mostly in the, in, the, in that article, yeah. but. To talk more widely, uh, um, to address Islamophobia, yeah, I mean it, it exists in all the uh, in all these Western countries, uh, and it has be- Islam has seem- seems to have become their main preoccupation. You know, I haven't written about that, uh, but there are there are people who have, and. Uh, <coughs> And that, and that is a wider problem within which the French problem exists, okay? Because it, it, it draws on its own mm. national uh, resources, colonial resources, uh, to, to, to bring it to a point of incandescence. Yeah. It, it, it brings it to an extreme. So France is a sort of, of counterexample, yeah. But... Uh, but as you say, it, it exists in all countries since the U.S. has decided to, and that, that was a long time ago, to make, uh, after the fall of the, the, the Berlin Wall, to make Islam its next uh, enemy mm. for reasons that, you know, I mean, I cannot any more know than, than you can. And that brings me to the second question about, you know, what you said that, uh, at the back, the, you are against the hijab as well. That's that's your perfect right. I mean, why not? You know, uh, that's one thing. But as you said, you wouldn't go as far. You wouldn't go so far as banning it. You know. And the question in France was whether these young girls could still go to school or not. You know, people expressed that they don't like hijabs. It's fine. You know. I mean, there are some things that I don't like, and I can express them. But the thing is. Do I have the right to ban people from, from doing them or wearing them? I mean, that's, that's a very fine line. I mean, it's not a fine line. It's a big line, and you cannot cross it. And what you're saying about, you know, women having been... The treatment of women in Iran, it, has, it doesn't bear on, on, on that example because nobody is to, uh, nobody uh, wanted to impose the wearing of the hijab in France. Mm-hmm. Nobody was proposing that, and everybody's horrified. Everybody's horrified at the idea that, that it is imposed in Iran and in other countries. But the fact of banning it in France doesn't <laughs> change the situation of, of, of women in Iran. I mean, the French being so self-centered so that every time... They sneeze, you know, the, the whole world has to blow its nose. But in fact, uh, in fact, and to the disappointment of the French government, uh, the law was passed and nothing happened in Iran. So, 
So it's the, the, the question of, of what happens in other countries. And you know, there is a very well-known uh, female uh, Irani, uh, Iranian uh, lawyer, mm. Shirani Badi, who said that she was against imposing the, the, the hijab or, or the veil and against banning it. We should be against anything that forbids women and especially women, because the hijab wasn't banned for men. Well, men don't wear it anyway, but that's, that's why I think they chose uh, the, the hijab. Mm. Well, the one guy in France was, mm. was, uh, was uh, what's the word? He was dismissed, oh, I can't find the word, from, from his job for we- wearing an Islamic beard. Mm. Mm. And then the third and question the was... The third question was oh, on yeah, religious yeah, extremism yeah. and uh, in the context of religious extremism and male dominance globally, yeah. uh, what do we, how do we think about women's rights? You know, I mean, I think, you're talking, you're from Pakistan, right? But, you know, I, I, yeah, we have to talk about women's rights in, uh, in whatever context. But it, sometimes it's true that some things take precedence because there are uh, emergencies, like, for example, the war that, we've, that the French have decided to, uh, uh, to, to wage on Syria, for example. But these emergencies don't last uh, for your whole life, you know. You cannot, and you cannot uh, abandon the, these rights because there is this and that, because there will always be this and that. There will always be... Uh, uh, upheavals, and the men are there to remind you of your priorities. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question at the front here. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you, Sylvie, for drawing our attention to all the mistakes that uh, Christine Delphi has uh, <laughs> has made over the past. And thank you, Christine, for not learning your lessons. Uh, it's been a wonderful <laughs> evening today and on Monday. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, what feminism is about, the political and knowledge project, and how on Monday you mentioned that we should not be necessarily focusing on what we have already done and achieved, but look forward and what else needs to be done. And today you said something lovely about struggle and how without struggle you cannot develop uh, concepts, you cannot move change forward. Um, So I just wanted to ask a question. Can we have as big of a dream in 2016 as feminists have dreamed in 68, 70, 74? Mm. I'm going to let you just answer that one. What? I'm going to let you just answer that one on its own. Mm, that's a very good question. Mm. Another question? This is actually the question that you kind of both need to pose and to show us the answer to. Because we also need to be able to have that imagination again. And it needs to be invigorated. Sorry, I just started talking, didn't I? (laughs) I mean, I think it needs to be invigorated through precisely through an intergenerational conversation, both about the unresolved, returning, repeated, antagonistic questions that 
Sheila put on the table and many of us kind of recognise from then and still disagree with, but return in a particular constellation at this particular conjuncture. And don't we actually need really to precisely travel the route that you put on the table, which is what is possible to imagine now, carrying with us the unresolved histories and the ways they articulate now to say what could be different, how might we begin to have those conversations, those struggles, to generate a set of conceptual resources and political uh, courage, because without the political courage we can't really go there, that might say, actually, you're wrong to say that skin isn't racialized through, for abuse. You're absolutely wrong, because let us really investigate the kinds of sexual abuse racialized in the war on terror. What does happen to women marked as Muslim and brown when the white men soldiers and the brown men soldiers from the West come in? What does happen to the woman that died in Holloway Prison called Sarah Reed the other day? What was her history that happened? How, how, might, we, how might we dare to imagine something that says a future is possible, but we will not, we will not give up on understanding the intersectional configurations of power and abuse right now, right here. I'm not going to take any more questions, I'm afraid. I'm going to pass to you, uh, to um, Christine, to say a couple of words in response to the exchange you've just heard. <laughs> if, you'd, if you'd like to. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. First, Sylvie tells me to tell you that she hasn't spoken about that book that has just been published in English, uh, Separate and Dominate. Well, I talked about it through my questions, but I didn't explicitly mention the book, so I thought maybe you could yeah, well, have a conclusion of the book. <laughs> oh. no, it's, an, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. <laughs> so I am explicitly uh, talking about that book. Uh, it's called Separate and Dominate. Now, uh, yeah, well, I said that was a very good question, and I'm very glad that you answered it. I thank you. I thank you because I didn't know how to answer. You could see that, but you did. And in general, that's my uh, wish for myself, not necessarily for you, that other people would do my work. Yeah. We are, yes, so now uh, we are done, uh, people. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh, please join us for a drink outside. I'm going to try and chaperone uh, uh, our speakers out rather than getting them corralled down here. So if you have a question you would like to or comment, please join us outside. <laughs>